1: Those of you who listen to Digging in the Dirt on a regular basis, know that I love talking with the farming community. I think growing things in a healthy manner gives you a whole different perspective on what is important. I love the wisdom I get from farmers and gardeners, and one of my listeners told me about my next guest, Mary Swander, and I'm very happy he did. Mary is a very busy, very interesting woman, and I'm tickled that she has consented to talk with me today about what she's up to out in Iowa. Mary Swander is an author, dramatist, performer, speaker, teacher, and emeritus, distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences. Swander has taught creative writing for 30 years at Iowa State University, and she is the executive director of Ag Arts, a nonprofit designed to imagine and promote healthy food systems through the arts. Welcome, Mary. It's a pleasure to talk to her, such a kindred spirit, doing such incredible work on the same ground that digging into dirt plows.
0: Thank you, Kevin, it's an honor to be here.
1: Well, tell us about Ag Arts, your nonprofit, which you say is designed to imagine and promote healthy food systems through the arts. Why did you choose this approach to these issues?
0: Well. I wrote a play with my students. It started back at Iowa State University about the uh, changing farmscape and the results of the farm crisis. And I thought it was gonna be a class exercise and it toured all over the country, including to the USDA with a performance for Secretary Vilsack. And all of a sudden I realized, huh, arts can make a difference with the food system that we have. I had people in the audience come up to me and say, after I saw your play, I changed the entire way that I'm eating and buying my food and my whole attitude toward farming. Or people would say, I I started a garden after I saw your play. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. And I worked then with Fred Kirschman, who was the director of the Leopold Center and Uh, president of the board of Stone Barns in New York. And he said, you know, it'd be cool to form an organization of arts and agriculture. People think they're strange bedfellows, but they actually work together very well. And I, you know, I just went, oh, click. And so we started the group at Iowa State. And then when I retired, I took it off into my own Little realm and made a nonprofit and grew the organization, developed it. And now we're doing all sorts of interesting things, putting artists on farms and residencies, educating them about what goes on in agriculture and allowing them to reflect that in their work. And we have a podcast, which is called Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, that's about. The Amish sustainability and the wider rural environment it's a lot of fun and it's funny and um, we do skits and interviews and little audience participation contests and have had a lot of good good response to that coast to coast.
1: So explain to us what you mean by uh, like artist residencies in the rural farmers um, milieu. I mean, it sounds really interesting. How does it actually work?
0: I ask farmers if they would like to host an artist or they approach me. It's amazing how many artists and farmers are interested in this and how many farmers have stepped forward and said, oh, that's really cool. You know, I I have a theater on my farm and I'm like, you what? And (laughs) farmers have a couple down months in the winter and they fill it up, fill up that time with often very artistic endeavors. Of course, they can build and fix anything. And so uh, some of these farmers have, you know, fixed up full-fledged, beautifully equipped theaters. Others have, you know, old farmhouses they're not using anymore that are perfectly uh, good for an artist. Others have, um, you know, chicken coop they've fixed up for somebody to live in. And they really enjoy the interaction of the farmers. So we've had writers and dancers dancing in um, beautiful historic barns, the writers, Writing books about um, what they've experienced on those farms. We, you know, we've had uh, journalists, visual artists, painting. We've had um, them make zines of their experiences. In addition to, you know, paintings. And the visual artists have also written blogs and uh, little bits of writing to go with their artwork. And so it's it's snowballing it's very interesting the summer cool. yeah the summer we're having a woman who's a fulbright and she's coming from india and she's going to spend a week at the maharishi international university and teach a class in uh, permaculture
1: wow a lot of good stuff going on in india in that regard
0: right she she runs a csa in India is certified in permaculture. And uh, the, that university was very excited to host her.
1: Wow. So she, is she staying with an actual farmer or she's staying with the university or how's that one working?
0: She, they have a, on, she's gonna be on campus. They have a guest house. And then, so she'll be staying in town and then she'll be going out to the various farms. There's a substantial, sustainable agriculture movement there with lots and lots of activity both at the university and off campus. So she'll be going around sampling those farms and she's also writing a book about women farmers. So I'll have her up here to the Ag Arts studio. We're only about 45 minutes away and have a reception with women farmers. We have quite a number of them in this area and then we're going to hopefully. Tour her over to the Meskwaki settlement, where she will see their food sovereignty initiative. There,
1: we'll talk about that some more. But under the Ag Arts umbrella, you have Swander Woman Productions, and you give—I uh, I, see—dramatic performances focused on food farming in larger rural environment. So, why don't you explain how that's going? I mean, is one of those the Map of My Kingdom? Is that's one of right. those that fall under that category?
0: Right. After I wrote Farmscape, then, um, I mean, I just fell into this niche of what I call agricultural dramas, and I got one commission after another to write plays. One was about immigrant farmers, and that's Vang, and then One was from Practical Farmers of Iowa to write about farmland transition, which is a huge issue for farmers. And that is still touring.
1: (laughs) It's the map of my kingdom.
0: Map of my kingdom. And we took a little break in the pandemic, but the demand is coming back. And that, you know, went from everything from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago to Mayo Clinic to New York University to Uh, nature conservancy in oregon idaho wine commission it it had legs and yeah and it and what it it engenders a discussion uh among family farmer family members of you know what the heck are we going to do with our farm what's next and that's never been an easy discussion now we're in an next five years uh, enormous amount of land is going to turn over because the baby boomers are retiring and right now lots of times um, you know you'll have two situations a farmer won't have a, a offspring who wants to farm they might have you know they might have five or six kids but they're all professionals in major cities or the opposite: a farmer might have four kids who all have agricultural degrees, and they all want the farm. So, uh, you know, there's and there's anything in between, and there are lots of pressures uh, from urban sprawl to consolidation of uh, industrial uh, agriculture um, to just individual personalities that might be involved
1: so how how does it work you you have a play with these heavy issues how do you how how does it get dramatized
0: (laughs) well in that play a map of my kingdom it's a, a dramatic monologue and it's told it's a one woman show and it's told from the voice of a mediator and when I was doing research for the show, and I've been through this myself in my own family, so oh, it was one of the really rough spots in my life. So I was even hesitant to take on the subject; it was so traumatic. And uh, but what I found was, you know, there are these people out there. They might be a professional mediator. They might be a lawyer. They could be a banker. They uh, even even ministers take on this role where they sit down with the family and try to be, you know, one neutral voice who can arbitrate among the different family members. And I I went to some seminars where the mediators were speaking. I thought, okay, this is it. These are the people that are right in the middle of it. They have all these stories about all these clients, the good, bad, and the ugly. And so I created a character, a woman that I thought was, interesting because women are very involved in agriculture but people you know only think of them as farm wives when they're in there running major chunks of the farm and uh i gave her all sorts of degrees so she'd be really smart and she is on stage and basically talks about her different cases and then the show runs about an hour and then we have a talk back with the audience afterwards, and um, that's often as dramatic as the play itself. I mean, I've had Bet. people yeah, stand up and burst into tears. And
1: tell me uh, about the eighty-one-year-old farmer who came up to you. They, that was a great story. They, they think-
0: oh, right, yeah. So we were in an old hunting lodge near Decorah, Iowa. That's the other thing I've loved about this work is, you know. We can make a venue just about a, out of any space, very malleable show. And we did the show and he stood up at the talk back and, and he said, hey, Mary, I I got a flyer from the extension agent saying there's going to be a meeting about farmland transition. I had no idea I was going to see a, a show, a, a drama, a play, and it was going to be so incredibly powerful and moving. Now, this is just a wonderful piece, everybody. You just got to go home and tell your, your loved ones, your neighbors about the show. It, it was really adorable. And so then you made it
1: all worthwhile.
0: He <laughs> did. And then he called me up about six weeks later and he goes, Mary, this is Mike. I need a, <laughs> I need a, I need a <laughs> I'm like, hi, Mike. And he goes, I need a video of that show. I said, actually, we're working on one. How long is that going to take? And I said, "Well, it'll be out in the next two months. That's not that's not quick enough." And I said, "Why? Right, what's going on, Mike?" He said, "I got my whole family coming home for Thanksgiving. We're going to sit down and talk about this." And he said, "I'm 81 years old, Mary. I can't wait." And uh, I said, "Well, that's good." And so he goes. Um, have you got a script? Can you send me the script? And I, I said, <laughs> "Yeah, I can send you the script." And he goes, "Good. Send me eight copies."
1: And <laughs> eight, I said, eight.
0: <laughs> and I said, "What do you need eight copies for?" He said, "I got eight children, and it's going to be required reading before Thanksgiving." <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went to the copy center and sent him eight copies. It was really... and you know what? That man had that meeting. I got to know one of his daughters and they had that meeting Thanksgiving and they worked out their plan by themselves all very well and then he died that winter wow yeah. you,
1: knew. <laughs> you know that's isn't that where you're after you're sort of on an organic kind of way of making this happen right rather right. than lecturing people then go out there oh. and get yourself a lawyer or something you <laughs> know
0: right you can stand up on a soapbox or write op-eds and you're not going to get as much mileage as you know, what I've done with um, arts, with agriculture.
1: That's wonderful. That's great. And so let's move to Farm to Fork Tales. You, 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 I like that one too, An Evening of Storytelling. So explain briefly that, because I want to go through some of the other stuff you're doing, because you're a busy woman.
0: <laughs> um, Farm to Fork Tales is really fun. And that's a piece that I was able to keep going in the pandemic, because we, we did a couple of shows on Zoom. And... I go into a uh, town, a community, a school. A, you know, it can even be a group of uh, friends and organization, and get the people to tell their stories about food, farming, or related topics. And uh, uh, I did one um, a couple years ago at the community college. In Muscatine, Iowa, of all places, it's a town that's full of immigrants who work in a couple industries there. And uh, they sent me into a ESL class. We had something like 18 countries represented with 16 languages from all over the world. And they each told their stories of their native cuisine or what it was like to come to America where, you know, a hamburger was something really weird and foreign to them you know just it was just wonderful so we put those stories all together now mind you these are people talking in a second language and so it was a you know it was a language learning exercise as well as a farming exercise food exercise and drama so then we put these together as um uh, a series of monologues on the stage, and we actually toured that a little bit, and um, and then I put them on the podcast. I uh, put a lot of energy on the podcast in the pandemic, so I was like, okay, we're not touring this as much as I had hoped. So we'll just tour it on, get it out there on the airwaves. And then listeners started writing to me and saying, "Oh, I love those immigrant stories. It reminds me of." learning to cook with my ukrainian grandmother yeah and i said okay can you write that up as a piece yes yes and uh, a couple weeks later in comes these fabulous stories about oma and baba and you know and um, making pasca for easter dinner and so i put those on the podcast
1: Cool. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm married to a Cuban and, my, and we know Mami Sita, she knows how to make tamales <laughs> and we could tell some stories about her food for sure. So, and what makes the, what's the difference between Farm to Fork Tales and the drama Vang that you did?
0: Oh yeah, it, it's similar. Vang um, wound together, it was a verbatim play. I did a whole bunch of interviews of um, immigrant farmers and put that on the stage as a regular play. And Fork Tales is kind of an offshoot of that, but it's the farmers and culinary artists, people who oh, have yeah. foodies telling their own stories. I and we don't, we don't do much blocking or anything um, with that. But uh, it, so it's, it's a lot easier to produce in its own way. We just, you know the only you know, the problem there is getting the schedule together uh, if we do a show t- so that like uh, the farmers or the immigrants have time in their you know, time to do it because yep. they're pretty busy.
1: I'm talking to multi-talented Mary swander She's been around the block on all these things and is and is out there working on the farm issues that uh, we are interested in here at digging in the dirt as well. And I thank her for being here. Um not only all this drama stuff that you do, you you're an amazing writer and the latest book you have out there is called The Maverick MD, the authorized biography of Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez.
0: Yes, um the Maverick MD is about a doctor in New York, Nicholas Gonzalez, who um, started out as a, uh, in sustainable agriculture, studying sustainable agriculture, and then he became a journalist. And then he was working for Time Inc. and they made him the science reporter. And it was kind of the booby prize job uh, at that time of journalists and he didn't really want to do it, but he was a brilliant man, he could do anything, and so they sent him to interview people like Linus Pauling you know, Nobel Prize winners and Linus Pauling said. What are you, you are so bright you're asking me questions more sophisticated than my Nobel Prize colleagues, you need to go to medical school so Nicholas Gonzalez went off to medical school. At Sloan Kettering, he thought he was going to be the next cancer researcher in a lab for the rest of his life. And he stumbled on to this dentist who had who was also brilliant but very eccentric, and he had cured himself of pancreatic cancer in a holistic way with organic foods and other nutritional techniques. And Nick learned, Kind of apprentice to William Kelly and then set up his own practice in New York and he was very successful I mean this man was curing cancer like stage four ovarian cancer stage four colon cancer he didn't heal everyone and the program he set up is intensive so not everybody's stuck to it and not everybody people- can do it <laughs> right and people came too late you know after they would tried everything else and actually it should be the opposite way do his program first and then go if that doesn't work then i'd go off and do chemo and all that but anyway um you can imagine he didn't uh he, he let's put it this way he had a lot of flack for his uh practice and his techniques and um and i actually became a patient of his, I didn't have cancer, but I had autoimmune disease and um, and any, you know, when other doctors, I mean, I ended up there because other doctors just shook their head, they had no idea what to do for me, I could tell that. And I walked into his door. And he said, Well, you you know, we weren't even into his office, I was just in the waiting room, he came out to get me, he would always just start your appointment, (coughs) boom, as soon as he saw you and he said well your problem is you had a terrible you were in a you must have been in a terrible car accident you have a horrible neck injury and i'm like yeah no i've been trying to tell people that and he said we got to address that first because it's damaged your own neurological system i mean this (laughs) he he hadn't even interviewed me he just had you, you know he had a few test scores and not much and um i thought what where am i this is amazing so I saw him for 20 years and, uh, you know, we got to be friends. And then when he, he died when he was uh, just 67 years old and I jumped in and said, well, we, you know, there has to be a biography of this man. So I wrote the Maverick MD and, um, and I get calls. It's so interesting. I get calls every week from people struggling with, health conditions wanting to know you know where to turn they've read the book and i'm not a doctor but i can at least point them toward um there are other doctors now who've taken up his um practice program and i can you know point them in the right direction
1: yeah well the book's called the maverick md the authorized biography of dr nicholas gonzalez by mary swander so if you're interested in that are you writing something new now
0: yes i'm working on a, another agricultural play and this one i'm working with the Meskwaki's. Uh, we have a settlement here it's not a reservation it's it's the most interesting place the
1: Meskwaki's the, are an indian tribe
0: they're an indian tribe and they uh they bought their own land from the state of iowa worked it out for them and um and the play is about uh white settlers basically taking over the land you know, in America from the Native Americans. As you know, it's a pretty, pretty contentious issue. But the Mesquakis, this is fascinating to me, and they came forward with this information. They had a mutual regard and respect for the Amana colonies who they, the manna colonies were a utopian group they're like the amish but more communal and the manna colonists landed on this you know farmland in iowa and there were the mesquakis and they're like wait a second we can't settle here there's already people here but you know of course all the white rules at the time said no you go ahead and settle there and so they worked that out with the that. The meskwakis could hunt and fish there that's what they that's what they wanted the meskwakis moved around this area you know and uh and they still have this um reciprocal relationship so it's the one really positive story that i've heard i'm going to include all the other genocide issues and all of that that go that went on with this issue but I was happy to land on this, and the Meskwaki's, uh are working with me with um, Meskwaki theater artists and drummers and dancers, and uh, Ooh, they've sounds they've, interesting. Yeah, they've been really, really supportive. So
1: and the farming comes into play too because they've been doing some of the practices that are now becoming more popular. You know, the,
0: oh, oh, absolutely, forever. Yeah, no, forever. That you know, that's the thing I've spent the whole winter researching this and i'm like wait a second here yeah native americans were farming this land you know we have this idea oh there's this vast amount of land out there and it's all blank and open you know and uh, all these things it's worth it was worthless it was native prairie but you know and that's completely untrue the natives had worked out an intricate balanced for the most part ecological system of agriculture and we come along and say oh no 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 you're doing it wrong and um one of the things that fascinates me is the white settlers insisted and the government the u.s government insisted that the natives adapt the plow and the natives were doing a kind of drilling for their planting where they just had sticks and they'd shove the seeds Into they'd only farm on soft, pliable ground like riverbanks, and they just stuff the seed into the ground with a stick. No, 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 no. You have to plow, you have to plow that all up. You're going to (laughs) plow, you know, we're going to, you got to plow here and there and everywhere. And, you know, what happened? But 50 years later, we have the Dust Bowl. So, right.
1: It was the original no till.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was the original no till. And they had the original, they invented. Uh, uh, herbal pesticides, insecticides. They developed varieties of corn adapted to their particular climate or microclimate. It was just brilliant. They adapted irrigation system in the Southwest that is just brilliant. In Mexico City, they were farming on rafts. Mexico City was originally an island And it started to get overly populated, and they were farming on these rafts around the city, and so they just attached the rafts to the landmass, and they would dredge up uh, dirt and sand from the bottom of the ocean. So, you know, a big portion of Mexico City was built up that way.
1: So you've been close to the organic and regenerative farming community for years, uh, and you live in the land of Big Ag, Iowa, where it's the dominant player. What's your take on the current situation? Are more farmers and communities and consumers embracing the changes needed for healthy food and healthy soil?
0: They're starting to have to do that. A few years ago, we had a serious drought here. We go through all sorts of weather extremes now. Not You know, we always have, but now it's more visible. And the only people in my area that were making it through that were the Amish. You know, I look out the my window and I'm like, wow, this field's look pretty good. And, they're, you know, they're not irrigating them or anything. And so the English, which is anybody who's not Amish, uh, around the periphery, you know, would <laughs> walk over to the Amish farm and say, you know, what are you doing that you have a crop and mine's all burned up? And I said, well, oh, cover crops, of course. And so, the, you know, English went home and thought, mm, maybe I better plant some cover crops. And so they started to slowly, in concentric circles, catch on. And that's just one thing that, you know, is a positive sign. Another problem that, uh, you know, conventional agus had with glyphosate is super weeds and uh, i saw that all around me too and now you know thinking well maybe that wasn't such a good idea uh, you know we're out there most of the day hacking away at these weeds when it was supposed to prevent all of that so know, yeah, bit by bit especially with climate change i'm seeing people adapt more
1: yeah, that was wow. part of my next question. Do you think as the environment deteriorates you know, as we have these obvious climate change problems, do you think that people and communities will start embracing, you know, these techniques to or be forced to support their local farmers doing regenerative and no-till and organic?
0: Right. I think it's happening. I had another call last week from a woman farmer and she said, just tell me I'm crazy or, you know. Can you connect me to somebody else who thinks they're crazy? I'm like, what are you doing? That, you know, is so crazy. And she said, well, we have this erodible land, and we just realized we can't keep plowing it, you know, in conventional crops, corn and beans. And so I'm planting elderberries, and I'm like, that that, that sounds like a really good idea. She says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm having to work out, you know, how to market these and harvest them, and should I have a U pick? You know, there are all of these challenges that sure. have to be be worked out. But fortunately, there are a lot of um, organizations that are out there to help people, There's practical farmers of Iowa that I work with, which is a misnomer and now there are people from all over the country that belong to that. And then a group that I've joined recently is called Climate Land Leaders and they're based in the Twin Cities. And these are farmers who just that want to address climate change on their own farms and they're hmm. you know they're just really active and doing you know they understand it's an emergency they're doing some really great things
1: well that's good that climate land leaders
0: yeah climate land leaders they're in um minneapolis yeah. good
1: learned something here this morning
0: yeah it's um, either minneapolis or st paul i can't remember I think
1: and the right. uh, practical uh, iowa farmers or farmers right. of Practical
0: okay. Farmers of Iowa, okay. which which actually was started in the farm crisis, and the reason it's called practical was a bunch of conventional farmers who said, "I mean, we're paying all this money for all these inputs, and you know we're, we can't make a dime. There's got to be a more practical way to do this." And they kind of re, they discovered regenerative ag in all sorts of uh, ways and they lumped together. This was originally just, I think, seven farmers. And now the organization has thousands of members. And yeah, and they do their own research. This is what's so impressive. They don't wait around for the universities who are often funded by Big Ag to do the research. They do the research on their own farms. Very good. Yeah.
1: That's good. We're talking to Mary Swander, uh, author and dramatist, and many other things. She has a nonprofit called Ag Arts. You can find her there. Probably it's at agarts.org. Yes. Uh-huh. And and also Swander Woman Productions, which I would imagine is dot org also. Right. Okay, so you—if you want to find out more about Mary, it's great, Mary. I—I don't know if you believe like I do that we're going to go into a period of tougher times because of the environment and economies and wars, and it seems pretty negative out there. What's your take? I mean, are, are you seeing that that we may head into something? And and then what? What's your wisdom to people out there to to sort of prepare for something like that if you believe it's happening like I do?
0: Oh yeah, we certainly have trouble and. Uh... We've just got to, um, as I say, you know, know that it's an emergency and uh, address it. And you know, our generation kind of messed up a lot of things. We, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was in the Vietnam protests as a younger person than I, you know, and then I thought, well, where did all that energy go? You know, and we became complacent. We got corporate jobs and all of that. And now, young people know that their future depends on it. So I'm very hopeful that the younger generation, these are the people that were calling me all last week, you know, I'm planting elderberries or how can I address, you know, climate change with farmers on a podcast that I'm making. You know, there are all sorts of really interesting things that they're doing and they have the tech savvy to accomplish it. So we've got to, find ways to reward them and support them
1: support your local farmer
0: it's so interesting to me that i have still you know really bright friends mostly the artist types that have this mindset who you know just don't see the difference between you know growing to the grocery store and buying a bedraggled head of cabbage that has been shipped in from California, when we have the best soil in the world and we have these young farmers, as I say, many of them women who are setting up CSAs and you could you know support them, give them a livelihood, give the, your local economy a boost uh, by you know joining a CSA and buying local foods from them
1: well and thank you for joining me today mary swander um maybe we'll get you back here when you have some more things doing that you're not that you have a lot on your plate as it is <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh, thank you thank you kevin it was a delight talking to you today
1: okay well keep up the good work
0: okay i will thank you you too bye-bye digging in the dirt digging in the dirt You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher.